Welcome to another episode of The Corner Booth, the official podcast of RestaurantOwner.com and Restaurant Startup and Growth Magazine. Today, the restaurant industry is changing faster than ever. Learn from successful independent restaurant operators and other industry leaders as they share best practices that will help you engage your team, delight your guests, and grow your business. Here are your hosts, Barry Schuster and Chris Tripoli. Well, welcome everybody to another session of The Corner Booth. We're very, very excited to have you join us today. I'm Chris Tripoli, and joining me is my co-host, Thank you. I'm Barry Schuster, editor of Restaurant Startup and Growth, the magazine of restaurantowner.com. And we are very, very proud of the fact that we are being promoted by restaurantowner.com and by Restaurant Startup and Growth magazine. So for those of you who have cut out a little portion of your day to listen today, you're going to be, you're going to be listening to Emily Williams Knight. Emily, thank you so much for carving out a part of your day. Emily right now is working a dual role of the Texas Restaurant Association CEO while she's helping them find her replacement so that she can work constant and full-time on her new role of being the collaborative officer, I believe, and executive vice president, I hope I'm saying that right, at the National Restaurant Association. It sounds good. I'll take it. So Emily, (laughs) Dr. Knight, why don't you please tell us a little bit about your background before we jump into conversation on what you're going to be doing for the NRA and, and your plans and goals. So please share that if you would. Yeah. So I'm actually going to take us back to when I was in third grade, which was a long time ago, but I grew up in a military family and we lived on a military base and there was a show in the evening called Hotel and it had Connie Selica and James Brolin. And, you know, when you're in that environment, everything's the same. Your neighbors are the same. Everything's the same. And I just dreamed at that point of running a major hotel and taking care of people, right? Being part of their their life and their world. And so from that moment in third grade until I completed uh, Boston University's hotel school, that was my path. And so I exited. I actually married a military officer, which is still crazy to me after that life. But we actually moved to Key West, Florida, and I was able to join Pizza Hut's management training program. I served more pizza than I care to remember, but it was incredible. And then I went to Marriott, where I really cut my teeth in sales and catering. I I did something really interesting. From that point, I was going to leave the two Marriott resorts in Key West, which were amazing. And I had to go to Philadelphia. That was our next duty station. And at that point, it was clear. My mom was a college president. She said, you got to give back. I started teaching. I started teaching hospitality courses. And then I went on, you know, really to fast forward, I was president of Kendall College in Illinois at one point in my career, where we had leading hotel and restaurant programs, open campuses all across the world to try to get people in developing countries better access to hospitality curriculum so they could run better businesses. I spent many years recruiting for the Swiss hotel schools, traveling the world. And then before I landed here, I ran both U.S. and Canada for an education company bringing international students into the U.S. And many of those programs were hospitality related. And so the last two years, I've spent leading Texas restaurants through a pandemic and been incredibly proud of the opportunity here. So congratulations on the new position. And so tell us what, what the position is going to entail. What are your at least key immediate goals? I know you're divided between two roles right now, but I, I got to imagine you're, you're already planning the next 12 months out. What's, what's uh, the future look like for you in terms of your role at NRA? Yeah, such a good question. When I first spoke with the NRA CEO, Tom Benet, about the role, you know, I had a lot of questions. And my biggest question was, will I have the freedom to make sure that we create really no light and no distance between our state associations, which we have 52 territories as well, and the National Restaurant Association, that my my feeling was that the states were on the ground. You know, I know in my life in Texas, about 65% of my members are independents. And I really saw that struggle and that opportunity in the crisis. And so you know, my question for him was, would I have the opportunity to help connect the NRA better to our independent members, right, the lifebloods of these communities while we make sure the chains continue to thrive? He was very committed to that. And I think coming from a state, understanding how you digest all the great work the National Restaurant Association does, I think there's a way that we can, you know, restructure and really start to get specific about what the services and products that our independents need to be successful. You know, I, I have to be honest, the independents were what fueled me every day in the crisis. 
And these were mom and pop restaurants often, or even someone maybe had two or three and they were left on March 19th with nothing, right? It was, okay, survive. There was no federal programs yet. There was nothing but darkness. And so for me now to be able to move out of Texas, we, we really led, I'm very proud of the team here. We led incredibly well. We've been reopened May 1st of 2020. We've never looked back. And I want to take those learnings and I want to bring them to the national stage and make sure that every restaurant in every state has that same level of support. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that sounds like a, a tremendous, uh, especially for a short-term goal, uh, a tremendous hurdle to cross. Uh, maybe you could elaborate a little bit on what you feel uh, the current situation is between state associations and the national uh, connection, especially when it comes to independence. Because quite honestly, as somebody who's been in the industry all his life, I've always had the feeling that many, very, very many of the hands-on small company operators never really connected to the national association, didn't necessarily see it as viable or a representative of them. So you may have a, 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 an immediate hurdle to overcome just to get ears open. Yeah, no, and I think, you know, where I, you're, Chris, first of all, you're spot on, right? I, I heard that a lot. And yet if I think about, and I really wanna use the pandemic because I think we'll get into some of the things that are changing for operators post pandemic, but but that really, really brought, I think, maybe up, up to reality, right? What the real workings were, what was really going on, right? It wasn't just messaging that was going to work. It was really providing operators with exactly what they had to do to survive. Um, and that's a very different role for both national and state. And so I think what we saw in that was between the two of us, the, the vision really is, is that when you're communicating to an operator, that's, I'll say in my world, in downtown Dallas, they have to know that they're protected, right, from a legal and regulatory standpoint, and they have the tools to be successful in Dallas, that anything that happens at the state house in Austin, that someone is watching out for them. But then the connectivity part is what's happening federally to be sure that your interests are protected. And I think my, the reality for me is two things. We need to offer more products and services to independents to help them operate their business. It's not an area we've played in very well. We've allowed the states to handle that. On the other side of the equation is how do we tell that story much better that when you join your state association, you actually are joining the national association. I don't think we tell that story well today. Um, And so I think my summary is, I believe actually we're doing a tremendous amount to help independents. We're not communicating it well, and we're probably not focused on some of the things that would make a real difference in their life to make them better operators. What are some of those things, Emily? You know, I mean, um, I, I'll echo Chris's sentiments, having been in this industry for a while and working very closely with our SRA um, and, you know, understanding the challenges SRA's had in terms of, of getting independent membership because the attitude was, well, great, you're doing this legislative work. It, ben- it Hopefully it'll benefit me one way or the other. So I'll free ride on that. But you know, before I'm going to open my checkbook and pay dues, um, I want I want something tangible. And um, frankly, and the challenges of the SRAs, and, and maybe you've seen this as well, is that you want to offer products and services, but you don't want to compete with vendors in the industry who are already producing those products and services. So, um, but but you know this. This is tell. This is your story. What what you know? Sure. It, what do you think are going to be the things that are going to make that difference for the independent? Yeah, I think I think it's the NRA leveraging its scope and scale to help the states be more successful, right? Mm-hmm. So you have economies of scale if we can actually centralize resources for the states to help make them more effective to tell their own story, right? Through the channels that matter to an independent. Mm-hmm. I think secondly is I think about delivery. I'll give you that as a best example. Um, the chains were able to, you know, obviously negotiate, but a lot of our independents, and, and again, I'll go back to Texas, but whatever the date was across the country, it was consistent. They were desperate, they were shut down and they had no way to generate revenue. So they went out and signed all these deals, right? Mm -hmm. And my concern is, and one of the reasons we just passed a delivery transparency bill in Texas that's going to Governor Abbott is that I want independent operators to be able to have that same negotiating power or that economies of scale. So something that we can bring to them is we negotiated with the three huge, you know, really big providers in Texas and have one set of rules for them and one set of um, uh, rates that you will pay as an independent if you are part of the Texas Restaurant Association, right? So I think, I don't think NRA will ever take all the products and services, but I think what we can do a better job of is understanding in the state level what matters and then giving those operators access to that and then being able to communicate it to those operators. I think one of our fundamental issues is communication. I think that we're not getting to 
a really busy operator when they need something the most and they are trying to sort through a lot of noise. And so I think that's a role we can play from a thought leadership going forward. Excellent. You know, um, you made some very good points and I, and I, and I wanna get you to comment on how you might see guest confidence come back. And is there a role uh, for the uh, National Restaurant Association to play there? Because one of the things that I saw that could be a big plus that came out of this pandemic is there seems to be a better public understanding of the uh, daily struggle, the life challenges and successes of the small independent restaurant operator. I do believe that before the pandemic, people went to a busy restaurant and because they met their friends who were the owners and because they saw that they were busy, they just assumed they were making a bunch of money. Uh, through the pandemic, with all that public information and with the SBA's um, um, uh, information, people started realizing that, wait a second, this is a tight margin business. I can't believe these people do all this work to try to get a dime on every dollar. Uh, so I think that that kind of understanding helps. Um, uh, I also think that the other thing that maybe people began to understand is just how large we are when we flex our muscles and add us. Uh, I don't think people really realize that restaurants together employed so many people and made such a tremendous impact into the community and the national economy. So we can't let them fail. So how do you see uh, maybe us seizing those two tidbits to help the public realize our importance, gain some customer confidence, get busy again, employ some more people again. Yeah, such that's a, a, a lot there, Chris, and, and you're right. There's sort of the, the two, two sides of that, right? Well, so now remember now, you don't have to do all of that in one month. <laughs> no, I know. In, uh, the, the first quarter. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell Tom that if you could let him know. <laughs> um, I, think, I think, you know, you brought up something really important, I think, and I'm first going to go to the right side of that equation, which is around um, safety and trust, right, and rebuilding trust. You know, I've been asked a lot, and as you know, Chris, I've done so many media interviews in the last 14 months, and I've been asked a lot sort of, where do we think that restaurants, why and when did restaurants become the target of the pandemic or deemed unsafe? And, and I think, you know, for me, it goes back to when states unilaterally closed restaurants, we sent a message or the government sent a message that they were being closed because they were unsafe, right? So I think we've been up against that the entire time. And we've been trying to fight, you know, research study after research study. And every single study that comes out says, restaurants are a safe place to be. And so, but I think for the consumer confidence piece of that, when you're up against the media, sort of two, two things have to happen. One is you saw many states create a promise document. And that was what we did in Texas was the Texas restaurant promise. And it was our promise to you as a guest, but your promise to us about how you're going to behave when you enter our establishment. Because we wanted to say from the beginning that the only way to survive this and now to thrive going forward is a partnership with our community and our customer. And so we wanted to be very clear and you saw those posted on restaurants all over, mostly independents as well. That then translated itself into something going forward, I think is gonna be really important, which is the serve safe dining commitment. So serve safe is the you know, number one food handler certification program in the country. And now there's a front end of that, which is what are you doing in the entire front of the house to be sure that you're meeting the expectations of the guests going forward. And you actually get certified and that customer can see that on the door and know that you're doing everything to make sure that they have a, not only a great experience, but you're also gonna make sure that they're safe, right? And you're building trust with them. So I think that's a great outcome of this that you're gonna see continue. I think on, on, on the front end, I think what we're asking for now, and I, I'm sure listeners will say, here we go again, or they're gonna feel this, which is we're asking for grace from customers because when we were reopened, at the same moment, we now have a massive labor shortage and we also have a supply chain that continues to struggle. And so if you walk into a restaurant, and I've heard this over and over, believe it or not, people call us all the time to complain about restaurants. Somehow they, they think we can do something about this, but, but much of the criticism is unfair, but it's optical. They walk into a restaurant, it's half full, but they're told there's a 30 minute wait. They don't understand that a restaurant that had 26 people in it is running on 10 because the labor is not back, right? Employees, and we can talk about that in a minute where we think they are and if they're gonna come back. But then you also have major supply chain issues, which there's a thousand reasons for that. 
And if you look at the pricing, pricing is skyrocketing for restaurants. So all those things now after 14 months of the pandemic are the new crisis that these restaurants are dealing with. And so we're hoping that that goodwill we felt in, in the crisis, that we can maintain that for a longer period of time to help these operators through this final turn. Um, but it's it's not pretty, it's not back to usual. Demand is back to April, 2019 levels in Texas, but we're almost 26% below the labor we had then. That math doesn't work for a great guest experience in most places. Mm-hmm. One of the, the things that you commented on and in, 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 that was a great explanation, um, was research. Um, uh, you, you have an academic background. I'm a business school professor and a former uh, huh. chair of a hospitality program. And I'm aware there's a lot of really smart people out there, PhD level hospitality researchers. Um, we've all met them. We've been trained by them. Um, what is the NRA's role going forward in having more robust research? And I'll even throw this out there, working with recognized PhDs at Cornell, UNLV, um, uh, Conrad Hilton in your backyard, sure. who, uh, who do this type of stuff and, and, and funding or at least supporting applied research that um, really gives the industry a, a good picture of what's happening, which, is, which, which they do pretty well, but what are the solutions? Um, I hope that makes sense. It absolutely does. And you're so right. We have very similar backgrounds. And to me, you know, um, we we have a, a research department today at NRA that's very effective. You probably know Hudson, who I call it the Hudson Report. And, you know, I was going around Texas before the pandemic and felt that I looked pretty smart because I would present a lot of that research. Mm-hmm. However, I think this this go forward to your point is how do you connect what we're hearing and seeing much more quickly to what are the products and services that we can provide to restaurants? And I think in some cases we present data that's state of the, you know, here's the state of the industry, which is wonderful, but then what are we going to do about what we see? And I think that's where that action, right, from just sort of presentation to action is going to be so important. And then engaging thought leaders in things like consumer behavior, right, in things like pricing and the role of um, ghost kitchen and commissaries and right and the role of delivery and all of that is going to be so important um but also you know navigating believe it or not all the federal and state regulations you know we spend more time let alone god this last year with all these federal programs helping a, a single operator even navigate the application process and so you know i i think you what you will see and tom and i are very aligned in this is that the amount of research and also the relevancy, meaning current research that you'll see the NRA produce also at the state level, I think you will see a great investment in that area. Um, I'm very confident and it's a big piece for me. I mean, we would, we made our bread and butter with the media and with our legislators just with data, right? We did a lot of research in Texas and we were able to say, there are still 167,000 people not working in our sector, right? We have 9,000 restaurants closed for good. This is the economic impact. This is what it's gonna be. And so I think, but that's also where we as national can really help the states because they don't tend to have those resources or help them connect with those academic institutions that um, Hilton Hotel School did two studies for us pro bono in the crisis about guest uh, feelings on returning to restaurants. Um, so that's you know a great relationship that we built in the pandemic and one that helped us then go back to legislators to say it's time to open. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the suggestions that I would have that I think needs to be put at the top of the list for additional research and data is to help disprove a theory that I think is still um, mistakenly all too popular. And that's that working in this industry <clears throat> is, uh, is work and it's not a profession. Um, I'm, I'm referring to today's uh, Washington Post article uh, that did cite some relevant facts. Um, but of course I took, um, I took issue with it because, I mean, you're talking to a person who spent his entire life in an industry that some people still think is what you do until you get a real job. And so employment in our industry, I don't think is properly presented. I don't know if there's enough data to go out and show what we know from working in it, that I can't think of another industry that has a better percentage of worker to owner than restaurants. 
when you meet all the time people who are now successfully owning and operating four or five franchises of XYZ company. And how did they start? Well, it was my high school job. I fell in love with it. So it became my career. I don't know if you find people in energy or in auto or in healthcare that say, well, you know, I started and now I own my own. Um, so, so I don't, you know, we don't have enough research and we don't have enough data and we're certainly not telling the story. Is that something we can do a better job of? A absolutely. And I think the story is going to be slightly different because I think the, my, my gut, and again, this is not a research base, but it's Emily's gut is that that labor pool is going to shift. I think it's going to look different post pandemic than what it did traditionally. Um, I, I also think that, um, and I just, just last week met a McDonald's operator. His wife was standing with me at a, my daughter's basketball game. And she said, oh, you work for the National Arts Association. And, you know, my husband, you know, he has got 26 McDonald's now as a franchisee. I said, wow. And she goes, yep, he started there trying to make a, make his buck in high school and now look at him. Right. And so, and that reminded me of that, of that story. I think we allow others to tell the story, but we also don't highlight real examples as much as we should, right. That pro starts student from a local high school in, you know, that got their start with a two-year curriculum that now runs a restaurant or the, the amount that you can actually come into our industry when you're in high school, you can come back mid-life, you can come back. I mean, I think a huge population is sort of the graying America, right? That should be a very good population for restaurants as well. And then also that you can choose to make your entire career. And it's not just in the back of the house or in the front of the house, right? The ecosystem that supports restaurants is massive. And there's incredible careers that I think we need to highlight. I will tell you this, last week we had our National Restaurant Association board meeting and we have category groups and I was able to lead an independent discussion and there were about 32 people on the call. Um, and what was fascinating was this was a common theme. This was probably what I heard over and over was, go out and tell the story, tell the story about how you can start in this business, tell the story, how you can ladder up your career or frankly, step in right as a new owner. Um, we need to tell that story. That was the most passion that I felt. And I was on um, the foundation board for six years. And so I've been in a lot of these discussions, but I can tell you there was an energy and sort of a, a, um, a feeling that we must go out because we're, someone is telling our story unfairly. And so that is something we're working on on the communication side. But I think you need real examples with real people. We can't just keep saying it. You know, you uh, hit a, a, uh, a hot point for me, which I, uh, I'm a pro start judge, among other things. And um, I believe in the program. Uh, I, can, I would imagine, I'd like to believe that there's going to be even more resources put into that uh, particular program going forward, if only because um, there are Plenty of, places, plenty of places in the United States where schools would like a ProStar program, but it takes resources. Yes. But in terms of a, uh, of a PR outreach to communities and to people on the ground, um, when they see these kids doing what they're doing at these competitions and they really understand, hey, these are not, these high school students are, are thinking ahead and solving big problems. They're looking at markets, they're looking at operations and then they're presenting it in a way that is fairly sophisticated for a high school sophomore. Anyway, I'll get off the soapbox, but what 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 is what can we expect for ProStart going forward? Is that high on the list of priorities for the association? Yeah, absolutely. The foundation um, leads our ProStart program, and uh, a couple things happened. Obviously, when the crisis hit, there were no competitions in the spring, and these teams train, and like you, I've been a judge for years. Um, my first month, the Texas team won the national. I could be with them in D.C., and you know, and it was, and for a lot of them, it's the opportunity they've needed their whole life, and more importantly, they find their identity in this program. Right? You know, we collect these kids. They have, they're very creative. They're very passionate. And then they go off and do these incredible things and they find their voice in these classes. And so we, we, you know, I will tell you in Texas that was replicated, we went to the Escoffier Academy online right away and said, mm -hmm. can you please create content for us? Because these kids are now home. They don't have products to be able to make dishes all spring and for many schools around the country all fall and spring again. And so they built a ton of online content that we could have educators take on to make sure students were still engaged at home. Um, and then we went and said, okay, what, 
what can we make sure that we can do, which is provide resources to the states to keep executing. So Ecolab stepped up and gave every state a pretty significant contribution to make sure that we kept these ProStar programs on solid footing. And then now legislatively, we're all very focused to be sure that from a state funding standpoint, that we're in really good shape this year. But more importantly, what are the grants and resources? People like Rachel Ray, uh, who invest in these ProStar programs, how do we get more of those folks to directly contribute to making sure our post-start programs are successful. Uh, you know, and I also think we have some work to do because the students in those programs saw the crisis, right? They lived the crisis. And so how do you make sure they still see a path where they can go off and be a great operator or an owner in their future? Um, I don't think we can negate that they lived this crisis like we did and this industry was pummeled, you know, publicly in the media, um, you saw restaurant operators struggle. So how do we make sure they see this as still a very aspirational place they can be. And I think we have some work to do there. Well, I hope they lean on, on you in terms of developing ProStar because uh, Texas ProStar is like Texas high school football, you know? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> they seem to we be the leaders. We have incredible people, incredible teachers, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah very impressed. <laughs> it's serious business there, boy. Yeah. It is. They're incredible. Yeah. And it's the educators, right? And so you have to invest in the educators. Um, these classes, people don't know in most high schools, it, it can be just a, a, a carousel, right? So I have three sections of math. I only have enough students to fill two. Principal puts me into, you know, uh, culinary or, and, and that's just, and I remember that growing up trying to explain to people my own choice to go into hospitality. And they're like, what is that? You're going to serve food, you know, and I had parents that wanted me to dream big and that's what I wanted to do, but not everyone's that way and has that opportunity. And so educating the legislature to understand the number of kids that go off to community college or four year that go right to work because they now have a skill to make a meaningful wage. Um, that's all work that has to happen state by state, but our pro start program is I think there's 170,000 students in it today, I believe. So it's, 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 it's incredible. And I, like you, I mean, it's my, I just love it. I just mm -hmm. love those kids so much. Yeah. I'd like to go back to that interesting session that you got to uh, handle and you were had, what was it? You said 32 people in your session and mm -hmm. mostly independents. And um, uh, in addition, of course, to the need to tell the story so that people yes. understand our industry better. Um, what else was learned in that session? Are there any specific needs, requests, services, benefits, things that you're learning, the independent needs that, that maybe they don't know if the association provides or that the associations uh, should provide? Yeah. So th there were kind of a couple of themes. One was labor. That was clearly the crisis, right? Which was, we just, we can't get back to full capacity. We can't get back to fully operational unless we, and, and is it the $300 supplemental unemployment? Is it the fact that we don't have childcare for all the women that have stepped out? Is it schools being, right? We kind of came to closure with, it's a very complex issue. I don't think anyone believes just reducing the federal unemployment benefit is going to send millions back to work. Um, many of these folks are trying, and I'm very passionate about this issue for women because there's still about a million and a half with children on the sidelines because they can't go back to work. And so, you know, that's 50, what 55% of our industry is female. So I think there's, there's something there about childcare and the industry and what we're going to do to bring these women back to work. Um, and I think, you know, that was a very thoughtful discussion about what we can be doing at the state level. Are there other sources? How do we recruit all these college and high school students that are now going to be stepping out this week and next? How do we get them into our sector for the summer? Um, and so I think that that was a, a, a really important discussion. There was also a lot of discussion about how do you create pathways for the employees that you, re you recruit, right? What's the professional development program? Is there something you can put in place, a credential per se, right? Where someone's collecting value. And so, and that's really the serve success program at a serve safe. And it's a, you know, three levels and it, you can take that credential and let's say you leave Chili's and you want to go to Texas Roadhouse. So you can say I'm a certified professional. And I think there was a lot of energy to relaunch that program. It was launched right before the pandemic, sort of sidelined, but there was so much academic work done on this and it ties to community college credits. So you're building this, you know, credential why you can earn your way towards a college degree. And so I think there was a lot of energy to kind of reimagine that and use the states to go out to independent operators to say, if you want to recruit someone, here's a way to do that. And many times the state will help fund those materials. And so it can be a no cost way to kind of keep someone and engage them beyond their job duties. So there was a lot of discussion about that. And then I kind of coined the phrase in my head as I was listening. And I said, you know, it's great operators create great opportunities. And my thought was, if we can start to create more products to make our restaurants 
right, more efficient and to make them more successful, then we will create the jobs that the economy needs, right? Great opportunities for, for employees. But I feel like that first side of the equation, we need to do a better job of, of uncovering what that is. In, in my, my gut early, I'm three and a half weeks in, so, you know, I think that there's information that we can be providing to the independents that we're not providing today. And so whether that be creating a community online where they can go in and source what the issue is and they have operators across the country, um, but the, it's vetted, right? So you actually have chain and independence in some cases together. Um, I think there's a way to broaden their horizon that's more than just sorting through email um, and, and help them get the information they need the moment they need it. Uh, but that's sort of my charge from Tom is to figure out what are those realities where we, and, and maybe, you know, this is interesting. It may not be a revenue source for NRA. It may be a member benefit. Be a right? service. Correct. And it may be something that we just break even on. And it's just about making sure that that operator is great because, you know, not to go on too long here, but but I remember making the decision when we created our relief fund um, in Texas, right? We've now, I think we're over $4 million that we've been able to raise and then give out grants only to independent restaurants in Texas, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. And I remember saying everyone was going for the employee and they said, Emily, are you sure? And I said, no, because I know if I can keep that, you know, chicken house restaurant afloat for the next however many months, then they're going to be able to hire all their people back, right? But if I don't do that and they don't exist, then no one's going back to work. And so it's the same thing here. I really believe if we focus on the operator, that the employees will then have a place to be that's successful. And that's where I need to figure out with the team, what exactly is it that they need that we can provide? Um, and I clearly don't have the complete answer yet. Yeah. Well, yeah, but the beginning of that song is music to our ears. I think you're speaking to the choir when you talk about uh, that maybe better operators um, are the answer. Um, we work in that realm and I think would heartily endorse the fact that yes, the more we can, ed education is the silver bullet here. The more we can make our operators better, smarter, more efficient, then that means the better work environment they're creating. That will help them attract the employees. Employees wanna to go to a place where they feel they fit, where they belong. Uh, and if the work culture is positive, not only are they attracting the right uh, labor model, but then they're able to retain the labor too. So yes, I think that is a party that um, you definitely need to throw. And um, uh, <laughs> I'll attempt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no I, th I think that's it. And I think that people have a choice, right? I think we lost a lot of employees when the crisis hit to other industries. They're not coming back. You know, they found other places to be. And then you have a new population you're going to have to attract and they're going to vote with their feet. And so if you're investing in them, I mean, you take a company like Raising Cane's, right, as an example. Um, that's just one example, I think, of a great culture. And they kept most of their employees. They added employees. They gave employees a bonus at the end of the mess. And some would argue, well, that's because they had drive through and chickens portable. But I'd also argue before the pandemic, they had an incredible culture. And so they tend to keep people and they stay. And it's no different for the independent, I think. But helping helping an independent, usually with a great vision and great food, run a better operation is a place I think we should be playing either directly or with our states is the conduit to those restaurants. It's a continual learning process. It's a super cool. Yes. I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but it's a tremendously complex business. There's so many oh. moving parts. It's yeah. incredible. Operations, finance, HR, and these folks, a lot of these independent operators, as you know, they're having to play these multiple roles that would be a full-time job, any one of them, um, if they had somebody else to do it. Yeah, and they're serving the public, which adds a dynamic to your world um, that, you know, if you're selling a product and it's shipped somewhere, that's very different than face-to-face -face with a consumer. So, and I also think, you know, one of the it's interesting. I've been, we're really trying to figure out how to get all of the restaurants to figure out that March 18th, in my case, is not coming back again, right? Of 2020, that, that the world has moved on, that the way you run your business, I think it exposed, the pandemic exposed some of the inefficiencies in the restaurant business model, and that you have to make those adjustments now because it's not going ever back to what it used to be. Um, I think that's something that we are, it's a mind shift that our restaurants have to make. In the, the past 12 months, 24 months, um, you know, not only we had to deal with, you know, changes in technology and the pandemic, but a lot more attention on social distributive justice, Me Too, um, 
I, I, I work with, know a lot of um, minority-owned businesses. Um, some of them felt like they were uh, skeletons at the feast in terms of some of the funding that was uh, provided. Um, what is NRA thinking about in terms of the entire culture of the industry that make it uh, uh, easier for minority and women-owned businesses to get the resources they need and also create this picture of our industry as an inclusive industry? Unfortunately, 90% of the restaurants are inclusive and, and, and fulfill that culture, but it's only when one of them steps out of line that it's the media seems to pay attention. Yeah, no, this is something, and I'll go back to my days chairing governance on the foundation board where we had to make a, you know, unilaterally critical and important stake in the ground that said we are going to diversify our board. And that does not happen by doing it in a three month period and diversifying your board, but we wanted to strive to represent the industry we served. And so it took us three years. And then now we've got that diversity going in the right direction because it takes time to make sure that you're doing, you know, you're also obviously bringing the right people in, but you can't do that if you don't have the pool of people to start with. Um, it's the same in our sector. I would say a couple of things. One, we, um, and I'll give my Texas experience. I think this can be replicated nationally, but we partnered with the um, Texas Conference for Women and we gave out grants just to women-owned businesses, right? We have done a lot of work at the national level, um, the multicultural hospitality, um, MFA, Food Service Hospitality Association is now directly integrated into the foundation. And so how do we bring all that content and best practice and help our operators, but also help position people to have that career ladder, no matter where they are and what their background is. Um, and I think third, you know, on what a lot of the states did is that we found very quickly, for example, in the first round of Paycheck Protection Program, um, a lot of our folks, A, couldn't navigate it, B, they were Spanish speaking and the forms were not in Spanish, and C, all the webinars that you could attend by SBA were typically in English. And so if you were a small operator, you were sort of left on the sidelines. And so we worked with SBA, we worked on the ground to do things in dual language, to get information out to the small operators. We actually even formed a banking relationship. So the smallest folks with less capital would have access to a bank for the second mm -hmm. round because they didn't have that relationship in the first round. And, and the uptake was amazing. Mm -hmm. um, I think the go forward is, I think you'll see Tom as a CEO, very committed to this. Um, as an industry, uh, we know when it comes to minority ownership, we're the highest of any industry, right, is restaurants for minority ownership, for female uh, leadership. But we need to do a better job of supporting those individuals. And I think that's with the integration of the multicultural food service hospitality, that content and those tools and resources, we can start to integrate uh, back to our restaurants um, to help them. But you're right. Unfortunately, now it's just it's the element of something going wrong that catches the media's attention. And we're not highlighting all the statistics of this really is one of the most diverse industries in the nation uh, where we don't, you know, it doesn't matter where you come from, what you look like, you have a home here. And that's not a story we tell very often. Yeah, unfortunately, but hopefully um, that'll be communicated a little more emphatically and, and picked up on the media rather than just when somebody does something terrible, you know? Right. Unfortunately. Yep. Yeah. Perhaps we could do that same thing with wages, uh, because I think I think the the information that you you know so eloquently laid out with regard to diversity is an issue of um, of public perception, you know more than it is reality. Um, as I you know as you know I've worked in the industry and the reality really is it's diverse. I remember working for just as many female managers as men and um, and having actually more women-owned businesses as clients when I consulted than men. And it's always surprising to me that other industries maybe aren't as diverse. But but let's also put a dollar sign on it. How do we get the word out too um, that every time we want to talk about a horribly low behind the curve federal minimum wage, the picture that we show is a restaurant. Mm -hmm. I, I don't get it. There's many more positions in restaurants today that are well above minimum wage than at minimum wage. No, um, yeah. You know, I mean, there's many more uh, managers uh, earning higher salaries than our poor educators. Uh, there are people in healthcare that I met that earn less than restaurant chefs. I thought, wow, we have to do some work on those industries. 
but the moment we focus on, say, bad labor practice, people working hard for no money, we make the picture of the restaurant. Um, is there something we can do to maybe fix that image? You know, I think, yes, I do. I think there's the branding of the, the you know, the retelling of our story, but I also think there's a public policy piece here and that mm -hmm. the policy piece is to actually start to have a conversation about wage. I think historically the association has been very much, that's not a conversation we're going to have. Um, I think the reality is today is that that is a conversation where we need to be at the table and we need to talk about what the, the wage should be and we need to talk about what the tip credit should be. Um, and that tip credit preservation probably most important because we know when there's discussion of eliminating the tip credit that the biggest um, obstacle to that is actually employees because they can earn well above minimum wage, right? By having um, a tipped wage, but what should that tip wage be? And so I think there's, there's a lot of appetite now more than I've ever seen uh, for us to be at the table having that discussion. And I think that's what you'll see going forward is instead of just a narrative of no, it'll be, you know, let, let's, let's sit down and talk about what it might look like. And do we believe it should be a national wage? I'm not sure. Do we believe that there are states, most states now paying well above uh, that amount. Um, but I do think you'll see a lot more dialogue, which I'm very proud of because that's, that's hard for an operator, right? That's already seeing all of their costs go up, but knowing the reality they're living in, it is something that we're going to have to sit down and talk about now versus just walking away from the table. I've been astounded at the level of misinformation I've seen about the tip credit. I'm, I'm talking at people at, you know, influential high levels of in state and even federal legislation that just don't understand how it works or how it affects the employees. They say $2 and 13 cents an hour. And they're thinking about something out of Charles Dickens or something. Um, uh, you know, it, it is, I'm glad you brought it up because I believe it is a very important educational point for Absolutely. the rest of the world. It, no, it is. And we know we had some op-eds. We actually went, had employees when we started seeing this could go down as a reconciliation, right, attachment in Washington. We went and spoke to restaurants that were um, obviously had servers and they were shocked. They're like, you, you can't take my tip. What? what? Right. This is I, I, I work here. Maybe even to your point, Chris, I'm a teacher during the day making very little. And I do this at night because it helps supplement my family income. You can't take that away from us. So we dropped a couple op-eds across some of the major newspapers in Texas. You couldn't believe the response. People said the consumer said what? Right. Like, no, you have to keep this. But the misunderstanding from the legislature in Texas, which is this is a federal issue. But obviously they would engage with us and ask, what is this all about? Um, no understanding. The education on the tip credit is a huge opportunity. Most people do not understand. And you have senators in Washington saying, how can you pay someone two dollars and 13 cents an hour, yeah. um, which is just simply untrue. And so stopping and actually taking a moment to, to tell somebody maybe who doesn't want to admit they don't understand uh, what it is, but also what it means to the people that are earning the tipped wage. Um, should it be increased from 213, right? That's the discussion we need to have. But the idea that you can allow someone to earn tips based on their service, especially now we see that the tipped wage is way up from the start of the year because there's such good sentiment from customers, right? That are going in and seeing these incredible employees on the front lines. Another question I have, and, and it's complex because there's so many dynamics here, including regulatory, et cetera, but are there any particular benefits for the independent operators that um, are not available now, but could be available? One of the top things that, that jumps to mind, and this is something that's been addressed, but group health care insurance to essentially do something cooperative for the independents, which, as we all know, are always going to suffer in the supply chain, in um, delivery uh, percentages, in terms of economies of scale. But then if you look at the statistics of, this, uh, of the NRA zone statistics, the, the, the greater number of, of uh, units are, are, are independents. Um, it's a very complex question, so I, I, I'm, I apologize for asking it, but it, it, yeah. it weighs on my mind. Yeah, I think, you know, there's a couple of things we think about, right, is, is um, 
healthcare, right? So, so opportunity to create something meaningful across all the states. We have a relationship today with the National Association with United Healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a great, a great relationship for so many states, but healthcare is so heavily regulated, mm-hmm. it doesn't actually work in all states, right, the yeah. way it should. And so I think that's something, that partnership is so strong and so good that I think that's something we need to think more thoughtfully about. Things like worker compensation, right, workers' compensation, and, and having, that's something we in Texas have been able to do successfully, which has saved people, I mean, millions of dollars, right, over time. And how do you how do you how do you provide that at a at a national level? There is some discussion, right, about a GPO. Could could you have something that was more around the products and services that were most meaningful to an independent and create a GPO? That of course we've got our supply chain friends that we need to be thoughtful about. But there is how do you get access to better pricing or better product mix for an independent um, who's standing alone? And so that's something we're we're also looking into. Um, I also think sort of um, marketing and social media services. You know, it sounds like it's so easy to do, uh, but so many of our independents don't manage that side of their business well at all. And in today's world, one negative review, two negative reviews. Um, you know, we've got the Google Restaurant Group I added to our board here in Texas because, you know, soon you'll be able to just go to Google and click a button and get your food. And so the reality of that is that if you go, 50% of the pages aren't even complete. And what has happened in this last, you know, pandemic period is almost five years of evolution in technology. So that guest is going to go to that website where before they would have had patience. They have no more. They're just going to go if the information isn't there. They're moving on to somebody else. And so, you know, how do we how do we help that independent check all those boxes to be successful, especially in a world where digital and social are a massive piece of their world um, that many don't have the skill set. Right? It's the hostess that's managing the social media um, and guest interaction. Right? And I think we can do better than that for the independents. And so, my thinking is: Are there shared service pools that we can create for the independents to give them? those resources um, and, and vet them for them. Right. And I, I don't, you know, the little stuff, right. Little discounts on this and that, I don't think that's meaningful enough. Mm-hmm. I think you've really right. got to look at the real high dollar items for a restaurant or high cost either, you know, physically or financially and think about how you can take those burdens on for them. Um, so I think that's where we can be a thought leader and I'm back to that operation side, which we haven't really played in. Well, I couldn't agree more. I, I think that you uh, just mentioned some things that would, in my opinion, be on the right track uh, for the mentality of today's independent operator. Uh, things that they can measure uh, some direct impact, uh, like they can if it's impacting their staff, if there's a service that helps impact marketing. Um, and, and you're right, it's it's not like the small benefits that they used to think of. I join an association, like I open up an account and I get a toaster I don't need anyway. Uh, those. The, yeah, the, those yeah. are the kinds of things that, so I'm happy to hear that. It sounds like maybe we are going to be sort of turning a page, uh, quite frankly, and um, and portraying um, our national association towards some of the larger issues uh, that independents are certainly concerned about today. Definitely. And, and there's never been a better time to get on board helping an independent, right? I mean, they kept our communities moving in the crisis. And we're, you know, we're pat, we just passed alcohol and grocery here in Texas. And both of those came from innovations to help our independents. And without that, you'd had a lot of places in Texas that didn't have access to food without restaurants stepping up and playing that, you know, that part. And so I think we owe it to our independents that, that, you know, really not only kept us afloat, but gave us something to tie to in that pandemic when all hope seemed to be lost, especially last spring. Um, we sort of have this opportunity to help them be successful going forward. And, and I, I really think it's it's the right thing to do, but I think it's also the right thing to do for the economy, let alone for just socially, the role that these restaurants play in their communities. You know, that's the, the table that's been missing the last year is that restaurant table where discourse happens and people come together. And I think we play that societal role and we all have to commit to helping them make this turn um, because we, we can't lose them. What do you think are some of the key consumer behavioral changes that independents need to understand coming out of this pandemic that, that you know, maybe some of them are missing? Jeez, I think, you know, off premise, it's not going anywhere. And so figuring out how you run your business, it's one thing when you can see the customer coming in and you can 
see your tables, right? And that kitchen can actually manage that flow. But when you actually have the person coming in, you have delivery coming through one channel, you have curbside coming in another, and you have to go that's coming through your website. You know, that is, there's no real trends yet for most restaurants. So how do you run your business? But that consumer wanting your experience when they want it and where they want it, that's not going away. And so figuring out how you deliver that either in your menu creation and design through transportable food, through how you brand yourself, actually the size of your restaurant, Are you going to be more off-premise than on? All of that is going to be driven by that consumer. But we've seen, um, and it was black box intelligence data that shows that that to-go or off-premise is not dropping at the level you'd expect. Some delivery has faltered slightly, but that sort of maybe, you know, take it and go, that's not going anywhere. Um, I think that's one. I think technology, uh, you have got to invest in an integrated system. I think we've seen a lot of people patchwork different pieces together, and that's a challenge because they don't talk well to each other or they don't give you the right data to help you run your business. And so how do you, how do you, you know, I, I saw a grid once the NRA produced and it was th- like five circles of the types of technology you need. And there was, I don't know, 500 choices. And so there's nothing more successful than a salesperson that's talking to someone who's desperate, right? And so I think we need to be super careful that we help these restaurants identify the right systems for the type of business they're trying to run. Um, Because that technology experience, the seamless ability to pay contactless, drop it off at my house, drop it off at the curb, that's not going anywhere. Um, I think to the um, alcohol to go in groceries and figuring out how that becomes part of your revenue mix. Uh, many states are passing those laws. Uh, we, we saw, I just talked to an operator, they made 1.7 million on margaritas to go in nine months. Um, and so you know, now that it's officially law in so many states, how do you put drinks in your mix for to go? Because it just drives your check average up so much, right? How do you, you know, if the consumer expects that, how do you tip who makes those drinks? All those things an operator has to think through, right? Or you can end up cutting out employees that used to make quite a bit from you. Um, Same with groceries. Does groceries play a mix? Do you want to have meal kits that Uh, Someone can take like a Texas roadhouse. I bring home my raw meat and my sides and I have a barbecue in my backyard. Um, So all those consumers got very convenient. Um, Convenience is going to be the key. And I think value is going to tend to still be a key for for people. Um, I think our high end we think is going to come probably last in recovery. And it's really because of their locations. Many are in city centers. There are very few conventions. There are no business people in those areas because they're still working at home. And so until that travel an office and convention comes back fully, they sort of have an opportunity to reimagine what that space looks like as well. Um, and so I think the consumer is sort of king right now. And, you know, and, and they, they decide what they want from you when they want it, and you've got to be able to deliver it. And I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. We've well, covered a lot of big ones, Chris. This is, you got a big job, Emily. (laughs) It feels bigger after talking to both of you. Maybe I should just stay in Texas. (laughs) I I think, I think you're needed in DC. In fact, now I'm convinced. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I appreciate you both. And um, it's actually fun to talk about. I think, you know, as a little girl till today, I still believe so much in this industry. Um, And I think now, you know, leading for me, I really found my love of service again, really leading Texas through the pandemic. And I think now collectively, we just all have this responsibility to lead us through the final turn. And we have to be careful. People see busy restaurants and they assume that we're out of the woods and that's not the case. People took on a lot of debt in the crisis. They're trying to get their forgivable loans from their PPP. Um, you know, there's still a lot of hardship and pain there. And so we just can't allow life to feel more normal for people to think that restaurants are out of the woods. They, they've got to keep supporting. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, I guess on that, maybe we ought to try to wrap up. But um, the points that you made are just so on target and there is um, so much work ahead to do. Uh, I think we're in in good hands with you uh, leading that effort. So so thank you so much again for taking time today and sharing these insights with the independent operator. This is um, wonderful information. So um, I think on behalf of Barry and myself, we can't thank you enough. We're here to assist and we wish you the best. Awesome. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Take care. Special thanks to our friends at restaurantowner.com, Restaurant Startup and Growth Magazine for making the corner booth possible. So until we uh, see you on a next session, go make it a great shift. Bye, everybody. Thank you for joining us on the corner booth. 
We'll be back next Tuesday with more inspiration, insights, and industry best practices to help you engage your team, delight your guests, and grow your business.